before we get started, I have a very important question to ask you. And I tried to research it online and there just unfortunately was no answer. And the question is Atayif or Kanafe? And be careful when you answer. <laughs> <laughs> it, it depends from where, right? I mean, I, I've, had, I've had some really horrible Kanafe, but typically I'm, I like Kanafe. Good answer. Good answer. What are Arabs and Muslims across America talking about behind closed doors? Well, they have something to say. I make sure it gets said. I'm Noor Goda, and I believe real talk gets us real solutions. Join me on Between Arabs, where I come to talk taboo with and about Arabs and Muslims in America. Assalamu alaikum, marhaba, and welcome back to the Between Arabs podcast. This is episode 25, Arab in America with Khalid Beydoun. Before we get started with the podcast, a couple of quick announcements, especially if this is your first time tuning into the podcast. Want to let you know where you can find more of the content that is being produced at the Between Arabs Project. First, visit us online, www.betweenarabs.com. That is the main hub where you can then access the blog, the podcast and the YouTube channel. We're a multimedia platform for discussion. Our mission is to develop a more engaged, empowered, and united Arab and Muslim community in the West by having candid intra-community dialogue that is rooted in empathy. The project has been around for a little over a year, so fairly new and still in its infancy. But alhamdulillah, we've had some great people join us on the podcast and some amazing writers uh, who have written for the blog. And now I have started to vlog for the YouTube channel a little bit more consistently. So if you haven't checked that out, go ahead and check it out. Leave a comment, like, subscribe, all that good stuff. Anyway, let's get started. I am so, so excited that I had the opportunity to chat with Professor Khalid Beydoun. He is a prominent figure in the Muslim and Arab American communities, and he himself is a Muslim Arab American and a native of Detroit, Michigan. Beydoun is a law professor, an author, a public commentator, and a critical race theory scholar. His work examines the racial construction of Arab and Muslim American identity, criminal and national security policing, counter-radicalization and the intersection of race, religion and citizenship. And his scholarship has been featured in top law journals, including the California Law Review, the Michigan Journal of Race and Law, the Stanford Journal of Civil Rights and Civil Liberties and much more. A commentator on pressing issues, Professor Beydoun contributes regularly to Al Jazeera English, serves as an expert consultant for the U.S. Census Bureau, and has featured his opinion pieces in the New York Times, Washington Post, and the BBC. You can find Professor Beydoun on Twitter at Khaled Beydoun. That's K-H-A-L-E-D-B-E-Y-D-O-U-N. He's also on Facebook, Khaled Beydoun. And he's got two upcoming books that will, inshallah, come out early next year. The first is A Reader on Islamophobia. And the second is a text entitled Why They Hate Us, The Rise and Roots of American Islamophobia. And I'm super excited to snatch those once they come out, especially the second one. We do talk about it briefly during this episode. Hi, Khaled. Hi, Khaled. How are you? Hi, Noor. How are you? I'm doing well, alhamdulillah. Okay, so does this mean that you're Palestinian? No, no, I'm actually uh, I'm actually Egyptian and Lebanese. Yeah, like, so Palestine would be in the middle. So I guess, like, I'm uh, unofficially Palestinian. Unofficially Palestinian. <laughs> well, yeah, especially if, like, you grew up in Detroit, right? There's a huge population of Palestinians out there. Yep, exactly. Yeah, I grew, I grew up with, like, uh, you know, many Palestinian friends. 
Mm-hmm. Why don't we actually start there? What was it like growing up in one of the most concentrated Arab American communities in the United States? And then now as an adult, as a scholar, an activist, a writer in a very dense Islamophobic atmosphere, what's the change been like for you? Yeah. So, you know, growing up, I grew up in Detroit, right outside of Dearborn, um, so it was uh, different, I, I guess, in many ways. Um, you know, I kind of grew up in, uh, I guess, the center, the hub of Arab America, but also the center of, uh, you know, African America. Right. Um, you know, kind of at the crossroads of, uh, you know, two of the most concentrated um, of color communities in the country. So, um, and also in a very, um, you know, poor to working class kind of context. So uh, the economic dimension had a big deal to do with, um, you know, I guess my upbringing and, um, you know, also what molded my uh, commitment to social justice. Um, so part of it was racial, part of it was religious, but uh, a big piece of it was also um, socioeconomic. Um, but it was, I, I, you know, I mean, despite, you know, there being a lot of challenges, obviously, um, I, I think it was a, a wonderful way to grow up, you know, because um, obviously, you know, for me, um, you know, I spoke Arabic at home. Um, I went to um, the mosque Friday school. So I was always kind of, um, you know, in tune with my uh, religion, language, culture, mm-hmm. and so on. Um, and also, I mean, I think just maybe part of the reason why uh, I'm kind of honest and like almost fearless with the way I speak up on things is because I, uh, growing up, I mean, there were very few white people, right? So I wasn't kind of like suppressed and stifled by this ubiquitous um, reminder that we are in a white supremacist country. Mm-hmm. You know, I grew up in a majority uh, minority area. So, you know, maybe in retrospect, um, that seeded my ability to kind of speak freely and honestly about issues linked to white supremacy. For sure, definitely. And you mentioned growing up in an area that was not just heavily populated by Arabs, but by African-Americans. So, as a critical race theorist, could you give us some information and language around how we as Arab Americans can understand the political events and the political situation that we're in now in light of African-American history and the plight of African-Americans specifically? So there's really deep connections, right? And I think that, so I'll, I'll, t- I'll tell you a story and maybe that'll be helpful. So a, a couple of weeks ago, I was in I was in Toronto to, to give a community uh, lecture um, to, um, you know, not only Muslims, but, you know, a, a pretty diverse audience, uh, up there in Toronto. And, um, I talked about, uh, African Americans, Arab Americans, Latino Americans, mm-hmm. uh, within, within the Muslim experience in very distinct ways, right? I, uh, was kind of constructing, uh, those, uh, racial groups, uh, as exclusive and kind of standalone groups. Mm-hmm. And then, Afterwards, I was, uh, I was, uh, <laughs> you know, two, uh, two sisters came and spoke to me Uh-oh. and they were like, yes, yeah. so I was like, I was getting ready. I put the, the defense up, you know, getting ready to get the business. <laughs> <laughs> the, is, the, the arched brow. <laughs> I'm waiting for it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, yes. I was raised by my mom and my sister. So I, I know when I'm getting ready to get in trouble from, from women. Uh, <laughs> so I, I was way in there and they're like, you know what, Khalid, we really enjoyed your presentation. However, uh, we identify as black Arabs. These were these these were sisters who were, you know, definitely unapologetic about their blackness, um, but also acknowledged that they belong to uh, the Arab diaspora. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and this is something I typically do. Like, I mean, I, I'm, I'm very critical of the idea, you know, kind of this American racial 
uh, imposition that you have to choose one race and yep. that you belong to one race. Like you're either Arab, you're either black, you're either Latino, and you mm-hmm. can't be uh, two or more, right? Mm-hmm. But f- for me, like that was a really important reminder that, okay, you know, we think about, um, you know, black and Arab as, you know, completely exclusive and distinct classifications. Uh, and there are issues, obviously, right? There are issues that, you know, you and I can discuss about tensions, anti-black racism within the Arab community, mm-hmm. um, you know, frustration by black Muslims, which is, you know, definitely something that's come to the fore in the last couple of years. But not not for us to also ignore and be, be knowledgeable, the, uh, cognizant of the fact that there are in perhaps a significant percentage of people in this country and beyond it that identify as both black and Arab. So sure. to, to kind of acknowledge that overlap, I think, is really critical. And uh, these two sisters reminded me of that. Yeah, for sure. Intersectionality is such a huge component of, I think, understanding what's happening in the United States, especially for Muslim millennials. And I guess in your experience, what kind of tensions have you seen within the greater Muslim American community around understanding race politics and intersectional identity? Yeah. So, I mean, I I was blessed to have um, learned directly from, you know, kind of the mother of intersectionality, Kim Crenshaw. Right. Mm -hmm. She was my professor in law school Mm -hmm. and she's she's my mentor now and she's somebody I work really closely. So, you know, I I can just say generally, like I'm really kind of heartened by the fact that, you know, intersectionality has become. Um, a term that is, you know, widely stated. It's, it, you know, it's achieved a lot of kind of like mainstream uh, resonance within, uh, you know, activist spaces. That, above all, I think is such a, you know, such an amazing development. Uh, especially because ten years, not even ten years ago, five years ago, intersectionality was a term that you know academics threw around, right? Right, right. So to see this term uh, in, you know, you know, other kind of framings. Um, be understood by young people and millennials and so on, just demonstrates that I think, you know, these young millennial activists, you know, understand activism and understand, um, you know, coalition building across race, uh, across racial lines, across religious lines, uh, in a way that is far more advanced than, you know, my generation or even previous uh, generations. And I think a lot of that has to be attributed to the Black Lives Matter movement, right? I think that that mobilized, um, uh, and not only a coalitional consciousness, but, uh, you know, also kind of mainstream the language of, uh, you know, intersectionality, uh, white supremacy, white privilege, mm-hmm. these terms that were, um, you know, only confined to, uh, you know, academic uh, spaces, uh, the Black Lives Matter really kind of thrust into uh, the popular uh, imagination. Definitely. Yeah. And as you said, there is a huge uprising within the Muslim community to partner and ally with those who uh, began the Black Lives Matter movement. So one of the arguments that I often hear among Arabs and Muslims, at least here on the East Coast, is, uh, you know, the the argument about black on black crime. So I'm interested to hear from you as someone with a background in law, as a professor of the law, what is your response to this argument? Yeah, you know, it's it's kind of a false equivalency, right? Because I think, look, the, the root of these issues, the, the root of police violence, the root of the uh, disproportionate incarceration of black and brown um, men and women, uh, the root definitely of Islamophobia and, you know, national security policy that presumes that Muslim identity is, uh, you know, correlative of, of, of terrorism. It, it's not a person-to-person phenomenon, right? It's not something you can link um, or construct in a binary that it's community versus community. It's community versus system, mm-hmm. right? So when, when you say black-on-black crime, what you're doing is uh, you're not only placing liability on other individuals who are 
uh, who kind of like lack agency and lack the ability uh, to reform system, pass legislation, um, reform police departments and so on, right? But you're also kind of glossing over the fact that there are real institutions in place that essentially pit black people against black people, right? That enable, um, you know, gang violence to be concentrated in the spread in, you know, poor, um, you know, inner city context. You you ignore the idea that part of the pro- the process of, um, you know, uh, black people being uh, incriminated, being uh, um, arrested at a high rate, being shot down at a high rate, whether it's by white policemen or other black youth, mm-hmm. The real source of all of this is the idea that you have institutions that are enabling this kind of thing, but also indirectly institutions that are being shut down that exacerbate this problem. So, for instance, when we talk about let's talk about Chicago or Detroit, for instance, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's no surprise that places like Detroit, Chicago, New Orleans, Baltimore, and so on, um, you know, have a high incidence of um, you know black victimhood, and also black victimhood is a consequence of other black men and women, right? But Again, these are spaces where the schools are being shut down at, a, at, at an alarmingly frightening rate, right? In Detroit, we've had 70 uh, of the 140 schools shut down in the last 10 years. Wow. So if, if young youth don't have any option, uh, don't have option uh, to kind of matriculate through school and, um, you know, go on and go on to college and, you know, find um, gainful employment through the, con- you know, conventional means, then of course, you know, other options like gangs, um, like drugs are going to be the only outlet for these people to take care um, of their fa- their families and provide for their families. But again, it's the system that creates uh, these kinds of ultimatums where uh, these individuals are, are forced essentially to compelled to engage in criminal activity um, to pay the bills. Absolutely. So the other, I guess, branch of this uh, situation or this conversation is there seems to be a misalignment among many of the Muslim leaders in our community, whereby the same sort of leaders will uh, hesitate or outrightly reject the alignment with, let's say, the LGBT cause. And the Black Lives Matter movement in particular was founded by two lesbian women. And Mm -hmm. so there seems to be a conflict of interest, for lack of a better phrase. And so I'm just curious to hear from you as somebody who um, is a part of the community. What's your thought on on that misalignment? Yes, I think there's there's two questions um, in there that that I've kind of identified. Right. The first question is um, how Muslim American leadership isn't necessarily delivering on bringing about the racial kind of justice and, um, I guess, kind of healing the wounds uh, across racial lines. And then the second question is, um, you know, I think a really difficult kind of challenge that sits on the horizon for, I guess, liberal factions of the Muslim American community is, you know, how do we, um, you know, integrate into this broader, uh, you know, liberal progressive movement? Or is that even something that we want? Yeah, exactly. And is it something that can be done, um, you know, entirely? I mean, you know, what one thing I've really been thinking about, um, and I won't answer those questions in order, but inshallah, I can come back and answer the first one is um, right now, it's, it's kind of like the Arab Spring, right? Like if you think about like the Arab Spring revolutions, if you think about it's easy to get kind of disparate elements on the same page once there's a common, common enemy in place, right? So, for instance, in, in Egypt, um, you had secularists, you had the Brotherhood, you had the intelligentsia, you had really bougie Arab living in, uh, Egyptians living in Ma'adi, all kind of congregating to get rid of uh, the common enemy, right? But as soon as Mubarak was gone, things, um, 
you know, kind of fractured all over again. I kind of see the same thing happening around Trump, to be honest with you, right? Mm -hmm. Especially, especially with regard to how, um, you know, previously kind of reluctant and even oppositional um, uh, elements uh, toward the Muslim community have really embraced Islamophobia uh, in full form, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, One thing that really concerns me is, and I think you've identified one of those primary concerns is, look, after this, uh, whether you want to call it a honeymoon phase or, you know, a phase of considerable crisis because of Trump, I think Muslim American leadership is going to be taken to the task about how they stand or where they stand on a series of issues that are cornerstone issues uh, with regard to the progressive, uh, the broader progressive movement. And that is, I mean, obviously LGBT identity, second, anti-black racism, um, uh, and third, I guess, like related to the first one, just homophobia at large and whether, um, you know, uh, LGBT Muslims can be integrated into the community in a mainstream way, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We, our leadership hasn't been taken to task on these issues now because everybody's kind of in, um, you know, high alarm mode, you know, focused, sure. kind of keeping your eyes on the prize on Trump. But once this fades a little bit, um, Muslim American leadership who have really embraced uh, and are definitely not only embraced it, but are clearly a big part of it. They're going to be um, taking a task on where they stand on these issues. And their answers are going to be really uh, pivotal because if they deliver answers that aren't to the liking to the progressive mainstream uh, establishment, that might notice a moment of, um, you know, kind of retrenchment. Um, away from non-Muslim liberals and progressives um, with regard to championing Islamophobia and other issues. Right. And do you think that that has the potential to fracture the Muslim American community? I think I think it does, right? And I think there's really important debates happening uh, within the Muslim community uh, about these issues, right? I think much of it is you have scholars who, you know, understand uh, the scripture and are reviewing the Sharia in a close way uh, to see if there is religious justification to support some of these issues, right? And I think that's important, right? To be, you know, honest with uh, the letter of uh, Islamic law is really important. Um, It's for those who, um, you know, really take, uh, (laughs) you know, the the letter of Islamic law uh, to have great weight, right? Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. And then you have individuals who aren't as devout, you know, aren't as like wed to um, uh, the scripture who... Are just kind of more led, or you know, kind of more guided by uh, secular liberal ideals and principles. Um, so you might see a divide, you know, along these lines. But I think, look, I wouldn't call it a divide necessarily, right? I think that, um, like all communities, it's important to have a a range of views. You know, uh, intellectual heterogeneity is a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and we're not a monolith uh, clearly along racial or ethnic lines. Then you know, why should Muslim Americans be a monolith along? political or intellectual lines. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Thank you. Tough question, but I appreciate your candor there. Uh, So let's switch gears a little bit and let's talk about the work that you, I believe, are still doing at IRDP, the Islamic Research. Yeah. So you're you're there um, and you're working alongside some pretty incredible uh, scholars like Jaideep Singh and Hatem Bazian. And one of the things that sometimes I think frustrates me, it's, it's a microaggression that I need to get past, but the word Islamophobia, 
doesn't really capture the nuances and the root causes of, of what we're experiencing. And I really, really appreciate Jaideep Singh's uh, phrase, Islamo-racism, because I think, yeah. one, it draws on the parallels between um, the essence or the roots behind this agenda that is a completely a complete social construct, right, race, and it just happens to fall on the heads of Muslims at this particular point in time. So could you distinguish a little bit between the term Islamophobia, Islamo-racism, how it's used, and as scholars at IRDP, what sort of work you're doing along those lines? So there's a lot of, you know, there's a range of, you know, almost kind of competing definitions of Islamophobia that are being offered by uh, scholars, right? So one of them is Islamo-racism. There's a great book uh, by Eric Love called Islamophobia and Racism in America that is coming coming out soon, yeah. Yeah, it's coming out next month at NYU Press. Awesome. uh, Which, you know, kind of, you know, aligns with that definition um, that Islamophobia is racism, um, you know, based on, you know, the racial construction of Muslims as being, you know, Arab slash Middle Eastern, um, others, outsiders, interlopers. What have you, right? I think I think the racialization of Muslim American identity is a, a, an important kind of uh, dimension of uh, this broader system of Islamophobia. But I think it's only one dimension. Like my definition of Islamophobia, and I wrote this article, and I'm writing a book actually um, that inshallah will come out maybe I don't know like in maybe half a year if I can inshallah. get to. Um, where I have a more legal and comprehensive definition of Islamophobia, mm. right? So Islamophobia is in part uh, private, right? It's the way we kind of think about and imagine um, Muslim American identity, and much of that is racialized, right? And it's uh, private in the sense that specific private actors um, envision Muslim threat in a very specific way, mm-hmm. right? That is tied to uh, you know clearly long entrenched, embedded Orientalist tropes. Uh, of Muslims as being Arab, Middle Eastern, immigrants, interlopers, outsiders, and so on. But that's only one dimension of it, right? Then, mm-hmm. Because you also have structural Islamophobia um, or, you know, kind of analogizing it to how we think about institutional racism, right? The way Islamophobia functions from within the state. Um, structural Islamophobia is um, a critical dimension that is kind of neglected, I think, by uh, many scholarly definitions of Islamophobia. Um, it's a second dimension, I think, the most important dimension of my definition, because it's propagated by laws, policies, programs like the Patriot Act, like, mm-hmm. you know, counter and extremism, like NSEERS, like Muslim bans one and two, um, even before 9-11, like the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act, right? Mm-hmm. Legislation which is based on this baseline Um, that Muslim identity is uh, presumptive uh, of terrorism or terror suspicion. You can't deny that the the state is also engaged in Islamophobia by way of law, policy, and programming. Um, And it's a critical kind of, uh, I guess, component of the broader definition because this is not irrational. Right. right. What the state is doing is not irrational. Right. It's it's not um, it's it's actually the opposite. It's, it's very rational because it's constructing and caricaturing Muslims as threat to advance specific uh, foreign policy objectives, uh, but also domestically to advance, uh, you know, very specific and cogent uh, national security objectives. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's very intentional and it's very rational in the sense. And then finally, my definition has a, has a third dimension called dialectical Islamophobia. It's how these laws, policies, and programs being advanced by the state 
um, you know, authorize the private Islamophobia we see unfolding on the ground. So, for instance, when uh, a program like CVE says that uh, individuals who are specifically devout or pious Muslims um, have a high high inclination of becoming radicals, this is law, right? Mm-hmm. And in America, we're, in America, we're taught to obey. Um, and follow the law. So if the law is telling you that religious Muslims are inclined towards radicalism, that's essentially uh, instructing to individuals on the ground, you know, right. private citizens, hate mongers, soccer moms, that if you see a woman wearing a headscarf, there's a higher prospect of her becoming a radical. If you see a Muslim brother donning a beard or wearing a thobe down the street, high prospect uh, that he's also a radical. So the law, structural Islamophobia, authorizes, it endorses, and during times of crisis, it actually emboldens uh, private Islamophobia. It, it resembles eugenics in so many ways. I mean, I'm listening to you talking about this and, you know, the idea, the notion that we can look at somebody and based on their physical appearance, we can draw these very wide and serious and insidious conclusions about their potential behavior, things that they haven't even done. So for Muslim Americans, what do you believe is our responsibility as far as demanding our civil liberties? And is it our responsibility to educate non-Muslims? I think so. And I think it's also ingrained in our faith, right? Like the idea of da'wah is to perpetually educate uh, non-Muslims about um, the way we uh, think about our faith uh, and so on. So, you know, you'll find a lot of activists say it's not my responsibility or obligation uh, to do that. I I take a a differing viewpoint. I mean, maybe because I'm an educator, right? So, um, you know, a big part of the reason why I um, chose teaching and activism is because I, I try to use whatever platforms I have access to mm-hmm. to, edu- to educate. Um, but I think, you know, beyond the obligation to educate, I, I think it's also important, and I think I see it happening now, that Muslim Americans are kind of um, looking beyond conventional bounds and spaces um, to build solidarity, right? And, um, you know, again, I'll, I'll, I'll point to the Black Lives Matter movement mm-hmm. where you saw non-black um, Muslim youth students and activists, you know, really championing that issue in, in, in an important way. Um, and it, it had reciprocal benefit. It wasn't only a thing where uh, we were benefiting the movement for black lives, but Muslims who were involved also, you know, got really, you know, important on the ground uh, training and education um, about, um, you know, how white supremacy being unleashed on black, uh, communities also impacts non-black Muslim communities, right? So there was a reciprocal benefit from, from that. Um, and I think, you know, I think it's, it's important for Muslim Americans to perpetually contemplate and think about issues that don't directly impact us. Right. Uh, and, you know, and, and kind of, you know, be there for other marginalized communities. And we saw some of that in Standing Rock, right? Mm -hmm. I, I, I was really hardened to see like many Arab Americans and Muslim Americans travel to Standing Rock, you know, and championing the champion, uh, you know, that issue in a way that I think 10 years ago wouldn't have happened. Um, So we're seeing a lot of things, a lot of like really progressive developments uh, happening in real time um, during a time of great crisis. Um, So, you know, just inshallah, I, I, I hope that that forward momentum can keep moving, pushing forward. Absolutely, inshallah. If there's really just one thing that Arab Muslims and Arab non-Muslims can do to mm-hmm. strengthen the diaspora, what would that be? Yeah, so, I mean, 
for, for me, one thing that I really uh, spend a lot of time on and care about is, um, look, we have we have a large number of Arab and Muslim Americans who are struggling with poverty um, and working class identity. And I think that there is kind of an inclination for people to kind of uh, divorce the socioeconomic dimension mm-hmm. um, from the plight of uh, the broader plight of struggling with Islamophobia, policing, surveillance and immigration and so on. Um, that I, I think that I really push for, you know, activists um, and everyone to, to think about how these programs and policies, you know, acutely impact poor and working class Muslim American communities. And we saw that in real time um, after the, the first Muslim ban, right? Um, you know, uh, me and colleagues of mine were speaking, racing, um, you know, tending to issues in poor and working class Muslim communities. These people had no clue what the law, uh, many of them had no clue what the law actually said. Mm-hmm. Uh, many of them thought that the country they came from, whether it be like, you know, Lebanon or, you know, countries not listed on the actual executive order were being impacted and were sending false information to their friends and family because they couldn't afford to hire an attorney. And many of them didn't speak English, right? So. Right. I think moving forward, uh, it's really critical to not only acknowledge, but to do important work in um, these economically disadvantaged uh, Arab and Muslim American spaces. Absolutely. And thank you so much for bringing that up, because socioeconomics is definitely one of those issues that falls under the radar. And similar to you, I grew up, you know, in an inner city uh, around black and brown uh, folks, non-Arabs mostly. I didn't have the luxury or the privilege of growing up around very many Arabs, but whenever I was fighting for social justice, it was always shoulder to shoulder between Hispanics and African Americans. And, you know, that always had or was always wound up with poverty. So it's something Mm -hmm. that hopefully Arabs can also, Arab Americans don't lose sight of. And that's it. Thank you so much, Khalid. It was an honor and a privilege being able to speak to you tonight. No, thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Inshallah, we'll have a chance to do it again. Thanks so much, Noor. Ma'asalamah. Bye-bye. Take care. Ma'asalamah. This was another episode on the Between Arabs podcast with Noor Judah. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button and and the bell. Also visit betweenarabs.com for more podcast episodes. Until next time, keep talking taboo. Salaamu Alaikum and peace be on to you.